We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter six. Why don't you open your Bibles there or your electronic device, scroll to Matthew chapter six. We're looking at verses seven through 15. Last week we saw Jesus talk about giving and praying and fasting. And then he, in the middle of that section, he uh, went on a rabbit trail, as it were, talking about prayer, and we want to reserve that for this week and talk about that prayer that he gave us. And so the topic, Jesus gives us a model for prayer that reminds us to daily depend upon God to care for us as our Father. And the title of our message is Daddy Day by Day Care. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we do love you. We thank you that you first loved us and drew us to yourself by the wonder of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You've given us your word, Lord, as a mirror to look into, but not to see ourselves as much as we're to see Jesus and then arrange ourselves so that we're more like him. And so today, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be our subject, that he would be the object of our affection, and that having come to this place, Lord, we would leave having been conformed more into his image than when we first arrived. May these words be a blessing to us as you intend them to be. May your church have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We pray this morning in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. A four-year-old girl was reciting the Lord's Prayer before bedtime when she said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us some email. If God were to send her family an email, it might be to remind them that what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be recited over and over again as a prayer. It's a model for prayer given by the Lord to his disciples. It is therefore sometimes called the disciples' prayer, but that still leaves you thinking that it's a formal prayer. It isn't. It's a radical new way of praying that eliminates formalism altogether. As a model for prayer, one thing you immediately notice about it, something obvious but it ought to be exhilarating, is that it first transports you to heaven and then it takes you back to living on the earth to await the kingdom of heaven to be established. One minute it's as if you're seated next to your father in heaven and the next it's as if he's standing next to you on the earth. I will therefore organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you pray, take a seat next to your Father in heaven. And number two, when you pray, take a stand next to your Father on earth. In verses seven through 10, let's look at taking a seat next to your Father in heaven. Now, historians say that it was common for religious leaders to teach their disciples formal prayers by which they would have a sense of their uniqueness. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, followed that tradition. We know that because one day Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, this is from the Gospel of Luke, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. It was in response to that request that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus gave them not a prayer to pray, but this model for praying. How interesting that Jesus had not taught his disciples any formal prayers. They were quite a ways into their discipleship and they said, Lord, you know, basically, are are you gonna teach us uh, some prayers? Because all the other disciples of all the other rabbis and teachers, they have prayers. And they may have felt somewhat second rate. 
Here they were committed to following Jesus, yet they had no formal identifying prayers. It was the kind of thing where if you heard somebody pray, you'd know, oh, that's a disciple of John the Baptist, or that's a disciple of Rabbi Shimei, or whatever, because of their distinguishing prayers. John's disciples would be reciting formal prayers. Jesus' disciples had no such prayers. When they went to the temple or the synagogue, on a human level, it might even be embarrassing that they had no prayers to notice them. Now, Jesus was not interested in formal prayers or formal praying at all. He is going to introduce an intimacy in prayer that was radical and revolutionary. And so I guess this would be a good point to stop and say, it's okay if you want to recite the Lord's Prayer, but it's not a prayer. It's a way of praying. It's a perspective on praying. And if you think about it long enough, if Jesus didn't teach any formal prayers, and this isn't a formal prayer, you might want to avoid it. And so verse seven says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. A little historical research reveals that the heathen priests of the Roman deities were required to offer formulaic prayers with absolute accuracy. If they omitted even one word, an entire festival might have to be started over again. If their prayers were perfectly recited, then they believed their deity had to respond as if the words themselves were like binding spells. You've seen enough crazy supernatural stuff on television or in the movies where somebody finds the spell. And then this super uh, powerful being has to obey you because you said the words in the correct order with the correct inflection. That's what Jesus is referring to here. This is what the pagan priests believed. They were the most formulaic prayers Jesus could use as his example. They were the ultimate example of what he meant. Verse eight, therefore do not be like them. For your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Now the warning against vain repetitions combined with the understanding that God is your father, it ought to put an end once for all to formalizing and ritualizing prayers. Nevertheless, it's become popular again to formalize prayer. The three hottest trends to encourage prayer among Christians are prayer labyrinths, contemplative prayer, and soaking prayer. Now, I'm not gonna go into all of these. We've talked about them before. I just want to point out that all of them are ways of formalizing prayer that claim to bring you to a greater intimacy with God. Sooner or later, you're gonna have a friend of yours who's come back from a contemplative prayer uh, seminar or who's gone through a prayer labyrinth, which is just what it sounds like. It's like a maze that you go through and at certain points there are objects that uh, you, you know, inspire you to pray and things like that. And they're gonna say that they felt closer to God than ever before. And the truth is, that's not possible. Because according to Jesus, formalism and intimacy are mutually exclusive. He says, look, God is your father. Talk to him and stay away from formal prayers. It can't be true, then, that formal praying and going through certain motions brings you closer to God. God is my father. He delights to hear from me the way any earthly father ought to want to spend time with his kids. And I think most of us would agree that if an earthly father was setting up crazy obstacles for his kids to see him, we'd think, hey, that, you're, not, you're not playing with a full deck. See, so can you imagine your house in the morning? 
Your kids get up and they, have, they face a maze, a prayer maze. They have to figure out how to get to the breakfast table and you know, do certain, they have to do certain functions at Esau and they finally get there and then you have some kind of a formal relationship. But that would be weird. So why isn't it weird when we do that with God? Why do we think we're being drawn into an intimacy? We're not. Now we could compare, uh, well first of all, he says here that prayer isn't always about asking for things. Like any good earthly father, my heavenly father is aware of my needs, so prayer can go beyond needs to a depth of communion that can only be described by using the word intimate. We could compare our praying to our heavenly father with the growth of communication we see in our earthly families. It begins with crying, does it not? You know what your baby needs. He needs to eat or to have his diaper changed or to sleep. He cries anyway, and then you do something about it. Why can't your baby understand that you're gonna take care of him? Why does he have to cry? I mean, you're gonna feed him, right? You're gonna change his diaper for your sake as well as his. You're gonna put him to bed on time, but he still cries and wants you to do those things, and you respond to it. You meet that need even if it is the need to let him cry because nothing is really wrong. As your child grows, he continues to ask you to do things for him, sometimes over and over again. You deal with him knowing the real needs and not just the wants. Your decisions on what to provide and what to withhold shape his thinking and his future. As your kids mature, all the asking can turn into a real conversation with them. Needs are not as important as the joy of relating to one another, of enjoying one another's company. God wants to have that kind of growing, maturing relationship with you and I, where we go from crying, nothing wrong with crying out to God, and even as a mature believer, there are times you're going to cry out to God. You believe that he's going to take care of you, but you still are so heavy with uh, you know, a burden that you cry out to him, but generally this is, the, this is the goal, is to have real communion with your Father in heaven. And so what we call prayer, you know this, it's just talking to God as our father that brings us gradually into maturity. And so in verse nine, he says, in this manner, therefore, pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so Jesus here, he immediately transports us to heaven where God is. It's as if you're seated right next to your father. Because of Jesus, we are, spiritually speaking, seated next to our heavenly father. The apostle Paul understood this when he said, and this is from Ephesians chapter two, he said, God raised us up together with Jesus and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we're to understand spiritually that we have been elevated to sit with Jesus in the Father's presence in heaven. So we've got a seat at the table, you might say, but what kind of a table is it? Is it a formal boardroom that follows Robert's rules of order? Well, no, it's a dining room table. It's a place where we can have intimate fellowship. Our Father captures this sense of intimacy that we should have. It's something precious. It's something personal. Anyone can call me Gene or Pastor Gene or any number of other things that are less complimentary. But only my kids can call me Dad or Daddy. And that is just the fact of life. And so I want to be in this family of God where I call God my father. The question is, is God your father? You can only address him as father if you've been born into the family of God by believing on Jesus Christ to save you. 
Your father here, we learn, is in heaven, obviously, and that means he's above the atmospheric heavens. He's seated over the heavens, overseeing and supervising everything that occurs beneath him. When you see things from the vantage point of heaven, everything just looks different. Seated with him, you have no doubts. Everything is working for good for them that love him and that his plans for the universe are being accomplished by his providence and power. If you, if you need a refresher in this, flip over later today to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and especially chapters four and five and see the church in heaven before the throne and you'll be reminded that God has everything in hand and that history is unfolding according to his plan and purpose. And so we need to sometimes be transported, spiritually speaking, to heaven to have that perspective of the earth. Hallowed be thy name, more correctly translated, would read, let your name be made holy. Seated in heaven, I comprehend God's holiness, or if you prefer, we could just say it's his perfectness. I see mankind's sinfulness, and I understand that history is God working out his plan of redemption to save sinful men. You know, if you watch stuff on the History Channel, or if you study history, or what, you know, in school or whatever, people have philosophies of history. They, they're trying to figure out what is really going on in the flow of history, what drives history. The Christian has the only true understanding of the history of the world. It is the story of God redeeming the lost race of men who fell almost immediately in the Garden of Eden and whom God through the centuries uh, and millennia has been working to bring back to a place of full restoration. When my perspective is earthly, I wonder about all the evil and all the terrible things that happen. I can't see the forest for the trees. When I remember I'm seated in heaven, I see my thrice holy God saving a lost world by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, exercising long suffering with sinners, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The word come is in a verb tense, meaning come once and for all. The kingdom is a reference to the literal ruling of this planet by Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus is coming back and when he does, he will rule over the earth for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20. After that, he will create a new earth and a new heavens and rule them forever, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, as a side note, it's interesting, I, I never really thought about this before, but the Lord's prayer, even if it is a prayer, it has a shelf life. Once the kingdom comes, once Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, we won't ever pray again, your kingdom come. And so this is a prayer that has a very definite shelf life. It's going to end with the coming of Jesus Christ. Your prayers are to be influenced by the future hope of the Lord's return. From your vantage point in heaven, you realize that the ultimate help for this earth and all the people on it is the return of Jesus Christ to establish the promised kingdom. When earth is ruled the same way heaven is ruled, only then will peace and prosperity be attained and maintained. Your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Heaven's in great shape. There are no problems there, no, no gangs, no uh, strange neighborhoods, no places where you wouldn't want to live. The earth is a mess. It got that way because Adam and Eve sinned and have passed on their sin to their offspring. Human history, as I said, is the story of God intervening to save the human race from hell for heaven. 
Your prayer should always be influenced by God's long-suffering with mankind, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and eternal life before it's too late. And so the, the first thing that we learn about prayer is that it transports us to heaven where we gain a biblical, eternal perspective. You do have needs on the earth. We're gonna look at them in the rest of the prayer. But first, linger in the heavenlies. God is your dad. Seated right next to your dad in heaven, you can easily embrace the big picture. Everything will look much different. Now, verses 11 through 15, when you pray, take a stand next to your Father on the earth. In the remainder of this model for prayer, Jesus gave his disciples a perspective of living on the earth while waiting for the kingdom. Live as though your Father were standing right next to you. He says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. The particular word daily can mean both today's bread and tomorrow's bread. If you're praying in the morning, you need today's bread. If you're praying at night before bed, you need tomorrow's bread. And so it's talking about your next meal, as it were. The point is, you can live in total dependence upon your father to provide what you need on the earth. That's, the, that's what Jesus is hanging out there for us to model our prayers on. He's basically saying God's going to take care of your needs on a, a daily basis as you need them. And so make sure your prayers fit into that mold. You can't help but be reminded of the bread God provided on a daily basis back in the Old Testament. After he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gave them manna from heaven. They were to go out each morning and gather it. They gathered twice as much just before the Sabbath day because God wasn't gonna provide it on the day of rest. Everyone always had enough and there was never any lack and it didn't really carry over. Uh, you, you gathered what you needed and that was it. People got tired of manna. Do you ever get tired of eating the same thing over and over again? There's only so many different ways I guess you can make manna. Uh, but it was, it was angel bread, and it was, it was how God was providing for them. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, when, when you do get around to your needs, when you start thinking about what's going on in your life, remember that God is providing for you, that he is caring for you. Bread is a basic staple of life in the context of Jesus teaching you how to pray. You're to be confident your father knows what you need and he can provide it, which I don't wanna get off on this too much, but it leads you to the understanding that if he's not providing something, maybe you don't need it. There's a lot of things I think I need. Corvette. Uh, that'd be at the top of my list. Think of all the ministry I could do if I had a Corvette. I could uh, cruise up the coast highway with a personalized license plate that said God gave me a Corvette or something like that. But you know, I'm just being facetious, but a lot of times there are things in our life that we think that we need because we see how they could you know, benefit even the kingdom of God. I'm not even saying that we want to waste them on ourselves. Immediately you think, oh yeah, those are greeds. People say, yeah, don't pray about your greeds, pray about your needs, but I'm talking about actually spiritual things where you go to God and say, God, we would like you to do this so we could do this for you. And God closes a door or, or says no or nothing happens. I have to believe that God knows my real needs and how he wants to go about meeting them and how he wants to glorify himself. And a lot of times the way that we think God would be glorified would in fact bring glory to men. 
people would end up saying, oh, see what this person has done or see what this group has done. And God, usually if you follow the life of Jesus and the apostles and characters in the Bible, God usually wants to bring something out of almost nothing, certainly out of weakness, so that it's inevitable that people say, well, that, that has to be God. And so God knows what you need, and so pray in that context. Your father is standing right next to you on the earth to help you with other people. You, you gotta get up in the morning and have something, you gotta have a house or some place to live, you gotta have some sustenance, and then you go out into the world and you encounter people. So I've often said that the world would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people that you have to encounter. Remember that Twilight Zone where the guy, he was just gruff and rude and he wished that everybody was like him. And I think, I can't remember what happened if he got hit on the head or if he just woke up the next morning and everyone was him. He played all the part and he was, they were all just, it was a terrible world. I know you think the world would be a better place if everybody was like you, but it wouldn't. I know it wouldn't be a better place if it was like everybody was like me. I would drive myself crazy. And so, um, people, God wants to help you. And he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Your personal fellowship with God is what is in view, not your eternal salvation. If you're a Christian, your debt of sin has been paid once for all by Jesus on the cross. Nevertheless, we still sin, and we will until we are no longer in these bodies of flesh. When we sin, we ought to ask God to forgive us. As we forgive our debtors is such a stunning remark that Jesus is going to give his own commentary on it in verses 14 and 15, and so let's reserve that for when we get there. For now, it's worth noting that there are no singular pronouns in this prayer. They're all plural. It begins with our Father. When we pray, we must remember that we are part of God's family of believers. Our relationship with God isn't lived out in private, but as members of a family. And so we have responsibilities and duties and prerequisites within the family of believers. And then verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The word for temptation means a trial or a testing which if yielded to will lead to sin. God does not tempt you to sin. The Bible says that very directly several times. Temptation we learn here comes from the evil one. It's a reference to the devil and his demons who are at war with God. Now that's not to say you are always or ever being attacked by the devil himself. It's a general observation that within the realm of the devil and his demons comes certain temptation. Satan, not God, tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They yielded and it led to sin. Their encounter with the evil one in the Garden of Eden set the stage for you to be tempted. Now, why did God allow temptation in the first place? Mankind must exercise free will in order for true love to exist. I think we all would agree with that. God cannot force us to love him and still call it love. You cannot force someone to love you and call it love. We call it kidnapping. That, you know, that's, it's as simple as that. And so, uh, same thing, God created mankind with the freedom to choose, and there's no freedom to choose if there isn't a real choice. He gave them a real choice, and wouldn't you know, they chose badly. 
They chose terribly. And we reap the consequences, the world reaps the consequences of that choice. But God immediately began to move in history and through history to overcome what they had done, the damage they had done, which was extensive. And that is what history is all about. Your father is standing right next to you on earth to help you resist the perils of temptation. You can be confident that none of the temptations that he allows are beyond your ability to resist, provided you will depend upon him and not your own strength. Eve and then Adam in the garden, all they really had to do is believe God and not listen to the devil. Even if you were to be tempted by Satan himself, the Bible says if you simply resist him, he will flee from you. He, he, he'll run away screaming. It reminds me, I love, remember that movie, The Bear? How many of you have seen The Bear? Oh man, you have to go out and watch that this afternoon. It's a great movie. I'll ruin the end for you now. I have to, because I already said I would. But uh, there's a little bear cub, and he gets befriended by a, a big grizzly bear. And uh, it's a pretty intricate story. But at the end of the story, they've split up, and this little bear cub, he's the cutest thing, a little bear cub's cute, cutie. And this mountain lion finds him and starts chasing him. And I mean, and you don't know what's gonna happen because it's one of those movies where, you know, hunters are killing bears and they're shooting and all. And so this little cub, you know, you're thinking, no, no, I didn't want to invest myself in this movie so that this cub can become food for this mountain lion at the end. And he finally chases the bear cub to the edge of a river and the bear cub is the cutest little thing. And the cougar, you know, he's mountain lion, he's, he's doing that cougar thing. It's just right there, I mean, just terrifying, you know. And then the little cub, he gets up on his little hind legs and he's going, ah, ah. And then all of a sudden they show, it's beautifully filmed, they show the cougar and he starts to back off. You know how cats do when they're afraid? And then you hear this roar. And, you, and they pan back, and behind the little cub is the big grizzly on his hind legs, about nine feet tall. And that, it's all, it, that's done. It's gone. The devil's gone after that. Roaring lion, get it? And so it's great. That's so all we have to do is listen to God and let his word speak. Just let his word speak, and you can resist temptation. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the second coming, Jesus will establish the kingdom of God on the earth. After the thousand years, we'll enjoy a new earth and a new heavens for eternity. As we wait for it, we can focus on the power and on the glory. The power reminds me I can do all things on the earth, endure all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. The glory is a phrase that reminds me that my life on the earth is not my own, but is to be lived in such a way that it points to Jesus and gives God the glory he deserves. And so this model for prayer, it ends with amen, which is a word of agreement. Your father provides what you need. He's standing there to help you in your problems with people and through your perils. When those principles guide you, depend upon his power to reveal his glory. Now, Jesus next commented on your relationships, specifically on your forgiving others, and he did it to clarify what he meant in verse 12. 
He encouraged you in your prayers to ask God to forgive you your debts as you forgive your debtors. And here's what he meant by forgiving your debtors. He says, verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now this is one of those times where we must tread carefully. On the one hand, we don't want to minimize the impact of what Jesus said. God's forgiving me seems to be conditioned in some manner on my forgiving others. I want to immediately say that can't be true, but the words are right there spoken by Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we don't want to put burdens on people they cannot bear by insisting that they immediately forgive every sin committed against them unconditionally. God himself does not unconditionally forgive. Otherwise, the entire human race would be saved with no need of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You don't believe that God forgives sin unconditionally. You might think you do, but you don't. Because if he did, then everybody would be saved. There there obviously are conditions to saving faith. Now, I couldn't find a single commentator who dealt with these verses in a completely satisfactory manner, even though volumes of books and articles have been written on them, and neither am I going to be the commentator who resolves this to everyone's complete satisfaction. Now, I'm not saying there aren't solutions that make sense. There are. For example, we saw in verse 12 that you can distinguish between what is called God's judicial forgiveness and his relational forgiveness. God's judicial forgiveness is granted once for all when I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. At the cross, all my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Relational forgiveness has to do with my maintaining fellowship on a daily basis with God as my Father and with others in the family of God on earth. I still sin, and when I do, I cannot enjoy the intimate fellowship with God that's available to me. And so even though God has forgiven me all of my sins because I'm saved uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I still ask him to forgive me sins that I become aware of, not judicially so that I will be saved, but relationally so that I can enjoy my relationship with him. It's the same in human relationships and in families. There are times when you have to stop and discipline your children. You know, it'd be nice if we could always go to Disneyland, uh, but, you know, they just won't have it, and you say, hey, that's it, we're not going. That, it's done until you say you're sorry. There's like that series of commercials, I think, is it Baskin-Robbins, where, you know, I forget any of them in particular, but, you know, the guy says, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't finish cleaning your room, you, no ice cream, and so the mother runs in there and cleans everything, you know, because they, they, and so there are consequences in human behavior. We can be out of fellowship with God and need to realize that, and and so there's a relational forgiveness. So in this case, I'm saved, but out of fellowship with God if I withhold forgiveness, whether it is asked for or not. That's a reasonable biblical approach to these verses, as long as we realize that these verses are intended to instill a positive fear in my heart. I should have a positive fear of God when I read this. And so let's approach this from a slightly different perspective. Let's look at how Jesus understood this kind of relational forgiveness. Since he came in the volume of the book, and since he is the way God in these last days wants to communicate with us, and since I am to be conformed into his image day by day, I want to see him practicing what he preached to us. Jesus told us to forgive others. Where did he do that? 
Well, he certainly did it while hanging on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He was wrongfully tried, cruelly beaten, condemned to death by the Jews. He was unjustly sent to execution by the Romans. Beyond the Jews and the Romans, it seems the scope of Jesus' prayer was for the entire human race, for all those ever conceived who collectively were the reason that he was on the cross. In his Father's presence, in prayer, on a fallen earth, Jesus could see the big picture and understand that what was happening to him, though intense beyond anything we could imagine, paled in comparison to the persons crucifying him, being separated from God for all eternity in hell. And to oversimplify the matter, he cared more about each person in the human race than he cared about what they were doing to him. The argument, I think, can be made quite easily that whatever a person does on the earth, however cruel, however wicked, however evil, it pales in comparison to eternity suffering in hell. And so Jesus on the cross being cruelly treated, violently killed, could say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. In our Father's presence, in prayer, on a fallen earth, we must see the big picture and care more about each person's eternity than about how they have sinned against us. Make no mistake, they may have sinned against us, perhaps in unimaginable, horrific ways. Some of you have been terribly mistreated, horribly abused in your life. Your suffering, if it was revealed, would make us weep. But apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, the end for those who have sinned against you, if they are not saved, is merciless suffering in hell. If they are believers, they cannot have fellowship with God while they continue in sin, no matter their protestations to the opposite. God the Father always answers Jesus' prayers. How does he answer this one? Does he forgive everyone? the whole human race unconditionally? Well, no, as I said, that would lead to universalism. He is ready to forgive everyone and anyone who meets the conditions he has elsewhere set forth, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus is my example, and he is, then this is what he was talking about regarding my forgiving others. I should care more about the person than about what they have done to me. Now, that's not automatic for me as a Christian, and that's not easy. Maybe that's why Jesus mentioned it as being a necessary part of my daily prayer life. It's a struggle that I need my Father to help me with so I don't give in to resentment or bitterness or anger or hatred. In the everyday world, a person who has sinned against you still needs to ask for forgiveness in order for reconciliation and the restoration of your relationship to occur. Jesus himself taught this later in Matthew a couple of times. Once when he said in response to being asked to forgive, we should do so 70 times seven in a day. And again, when he described church discipline. And so his disciples had questions about forgiveness and he didn't say, no one ever needs to ask you for forgiveness because you've already forgiven them unconditionally. No, he didn't say that. He said, if someone asks you for forgiveness, when they do, you have to grant it. Doesn't matter if they do the same thing over and over again, 70 times seven. Guy comes up, punches you in the face, will you forgive me? Sure. Punches you in the face, will you forgive me? Sure. 
He was talking about the principle of granting forgiveness. And then the whole issue of church discipline makes no sense. If we've already forgiven everybody, then there is no sin to discipline. And so Jesus is not saying that there is this unconditional forgiveness in relationships. I think if you look at all the verses about forgiveness, everything that Jesus and the apostles taught, this is the conclusion you will come to. You must gain God's eternal perspective on others, forgive them in the sense that what they have done to you pales compared to the potential consequences in their own life, and then be ready to be reconciled if and when they repent. I should fear to withhold forgiveness. If I harbor bitterness in my heart, if I do not desire to forgive others, if I do not wish to be reconciled and restored with them, should they repent, then I am not being crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. That's something we like to talk about as describing our Christian relationship, right? That I am with Christ on the cross being crucified. Well, while he was on the cross being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he meant, Lord, if they repent and believe on me, grant them eternal life. But in the meantime, I see that what they're doing has more horrifying consequences on, in their own life than what they're doing to me. And so Jesus had a, a heart of forgiveness, a readiness to forgive, regardless of what was being done against him. Now at best, and it's really not good in any sense, that means I am not in fellowship with my Father in heaven. If I harbor bitterness and hatred and resentment, then I'm not in fe fellowship with my Father in heaven. And at worst, it might indicate I've never been born again. You know, more and more you find people in churches, even good churches, who they're just not born again. They've never been saved. I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at your spiritual life and saying, is there evidence that I am really a Christian? Not to work for your salvation, but is there fruit in my life? The context of Jesus' words is spending time in prayer with your heavenly Father. There in prayer every day, whatever is going on in your heart and life will come up for discussion. If you've been sinned against by others, you're going to be struggling in your response because you still have your flesh and the works of your flesh to contend against. When people sin against you, it hurts, sometimes more than you think you can bear. You don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever been mistreated by someone, Christian or not, that you think, I just can't bear this. It hurts so bad. Why did they do that? If you find that you can easily, automatically forgive them with no struggle, my spiritual hat is off to you. You're the exception because it's hard. For most of us, there's going to be an ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Your father's not going to condemn you for struggling. The struggle is, in fact, evidence you've been born again and have his spirit living in you. It reminds us of Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans where he says, things I want to do, I, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is able to deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then he talks about the work of the spirit as we yield uh, and, and win that struggle. And so struggling is evidence that you are the Lord's. Analyze life from your seat in the heavenlies and then ask and receive from your Father all the help you need while you remain on the earth. Let's pray.